Isaiah was a very comfortable preacher, a very comfortable prophet before Isaiah 6. Before Isaiah 6, he served initially, he was initially called to serve in the, the kingdom and in the, in the palace of King Uzziah. You can see from chapter 6, verse 1 here that he's writing in the year that King Uzziah died. According to Jewish, old Jewish tradition, King Uzziah was Isaiah's first cousin. King Uzziah ruled in Jerusalem for 52 years. So towards the end of his reign, at the beginning of Isaiah's time as a preacher and a prophet in, in Judah, Isaiah gets to be kind of brought into being a prophet, into the palace, under his cousin, King Uzziah, who had a really remarkable reign. If you're ever interested in this, go back and look at 2 Chronicles 26. Uh, Uzziah did some extraordinary things in Judah. He wasn't perfect, but he was a king, one of the kings, who tried to follow the Lord. And he had been king in Jerusalem for 52 years. Well, think about what that was like then for Isaiah. The opportunity to, to come into the palace to serve with his cousin as the king, and this, this long legacy of stability, this long legacy of godly leadership. And then something happens at the end of Uzziah's life, and he, he's clearly ailing, he's clearly approaching death. It says here, kind of vaguely, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We don't know if Uzziah was dead, we don't know if he was just nearing death. But whatever the situation Isaiah is filled, the whole nation is filled with anxiety and uncertainty because here's this legacy king who's done great things, but now there's, right, there's Assyria and Babylon growing stronger in prominence in the north. And Egypt in the south is always right there looking for new assets and new vassal states. And so Isaiah's thinking, God, with Uzziah dying, what is, what's going to happen to Judah? What's going to happen to this little tiny nation kingdom? What's going to happen to Judah now? What is going to be the solution to how we ended last week in chapter 5? The looking across the land and all you see is darkness and distress. What, what's going to be the solution to the, the spiritual idolatry and adultery that's growing that Isaiah sees across the land? Israel to the north had been a part of God's people and now they were wholesale idol worshipers. And, and it's starting to filter down and trickle in and influence Judah as well. And Isaiah sees all this. He's thinking, what is going to happen to this now leader, leaderless, sinful, fragile people? And what's going to happen to Isaiah? Right? I mean, Isaiah is probably concerned with what's going to happen to Isaiah as well as all these things. And so, as many people do when they're in distressing situations, they turn to the Lord. Right, you remember what happened to churches after 9-11, 20 years ago? Right? All of a sudden, there was a bumper crop of people exploring faith and, and what's God doing, right? So Isaiah's doing the same thing. Israel, Judah's in distress. Jerusalem's in distress. Isaiah's in distress. So he turns to the Lord. So it says here in Isaiah 6-1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah turns to the Lord. We turn to the Lord. This is a metaphor, right? You don't expect when you turn to the Lord to see the Lord, right? You expect to maybe feel better or have a sense of something. But Isaiah turns to the Lord and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, right? His eyes are open for a moment. 
And when he previously looked around and he saw the, the, the aging man or the empty throne in Jerusalem, and he saw the promises of God cracking and getting fragile, and he saw sin and idolatry infiltrating God's people, now his eyes are open and he sees what's really going on. And what's really going on? The Lord is high and lifted up, seated on the throne. What's going on with the throne in Jerusalem? What's going on with the throne in Assyria? What's going on with the throne anywhere? Doesn't really matter for God's people and for their outlook on how things are going to shake down. Because Isaiah looks and he sees the high and lifted up throne and who is seated on it. What does it mean that it's high and lifted up? It means that this is the throne that is over everything. This is the throne of the one who sees all things and is sovereignly in control of all things. And so while an empty throne for Isaiah might mean insecurity and instability and, and uh, anxiety, when he sees the real throne, it's full. Somebody's seated there. The Lord is sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. It says that the train of his robe filled the temple. This is an interesting kind of thing here. So Isaiah knows that it's the Lord. He knows that the Lord is seated above him, but all he can see is the hem of his pants, right? That's all he can see. And just the hem of his pants, just the, the edge of his robe fills everything that Isaiah can see and beyond it, the Lord is seated above him. But he can't see that. All he can see is the hem filling the temple. The word here is not the normal word for the temple of Israel. It's the word for the house of the God. If you're talking about a king, you would also call this the house of the king. It's the word for the house of the dignitary. Uh, if this is the house of a king, what would you call it? You call it a palace, right? But this is the house of a God, so it's translated temple here. But it's much more this vision of somebody on a throne, and this is the palace, the, the throne room of the palace. And, the, and Isaiah is overwhelmed by this vision. And then he sees something else as his eyes adjust to what he sees, right? He sees something else. He sees these things. This calls them the seraphim. What's seraphim? We don't know, right? Seraphim means the burning ones. These, these fiery-looking, glorious-looking beings who have six wings. With two, they cover their faces. Why? Because the Lord is too glorious even for them to look upon. With two, they cover their feet, right? It's like they're, it's a self-protection measure, right? And then with two, they fly and they sing out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is a really interesting expression. We're very used to hearing this, like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, where we sing this song. This is the only time a word is tripled in the Old Testament. So in Hebrew, you have your superlatives, very, much, best, and you would double that if you wanted to say, whew. Tripling it is just, you just didn't do it. So he's saying that not only is God, they're saying not only is God holy, like there's a lot of things that are holy, that temple's holy to that God, that temple's holy to that God. He's not just the holy, holy one, who's like super duper holy. He's the, he is holiness. He's the only holy one, is what they're saying. He's the only Holy One, and the earth is filled with His glory. Then it says in verse 4, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Have you ever walked towards a concert venue when a concert is in 
right, happening, and you can kind of feel it start getting more and more like, oh boy, here we go, and then you, you, the door opens and you go in and you're just assaulted by the volume and the power of what's happening. That's what Isaiah's experience is here. He steps into the threshold and the bass is just thumping the doorposts, right? It is so overwhelming and it's filled with smoke. You know, if you were reading this is a, or hearing this story told by Isaiah, and he said that before the presence of God, with all these burning ones flying around, it was an earthquake and it was filled with smoke. What would you think of? We've seen this kind of scene before in the story of Israel. Back on Mount Sinai, God's bringing his people out of Egypt towards the promised land. He stops at Sinai to, to give them instructions to help purge their idolatry of Egypt and prepare them for what they're going to face in Canaan. And he stops there at Mount Sinai and his glory descends upon it as what? Do you remember? A pillar of cloud full of, full of lightning and, and burning light. And there's an earthquake, right? And everybody trembles. And then what's extraordinary is that a little bit later, after in that place God gives them the outline for the tabernacle and he, and he gives them this instruction, they go out later, they build it. And when they build it, when it's all done, that pillar of cloud and that glory, it moves. And it goes and it settles on the tabernacle. And it fills the tabernacle. That glory fills the tabernacle, what will be later the temple. So, so much so that nobody can go in, right? Moses stands outside and nobody can go in and everybody falls down and worships the glory of the Lord there on the tabernacle. And then Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is all about instructions for how you can get into that place and worship this God uh, lest you die, right? There's all of these, you've got to be really careful about this, don't do this, lest you die, lest you die, lest you die. And now what's Isaiah? What's his situation here? He's inside of it. He's inside this. And so what does he say? Verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, I am lost. Woe is me, I am a dead man. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the Lord and so he is overwhelmed and, and, and believes that he ought to die. He deserves death. Notice something here. The way he says it, he says, woe is me. And if you remember last week in chapter 5, Isaiah laid six woes on Israel. Six woes. He says, woe to those who add property to property. And woe to those who get drunk all the time. And woe to those who call right, wrong, and wrong, right. He laid these woes on Israel. And now is the seventh woe. And it's laid on Isaiah. This is the seventh woe. Now, at this moment, Isaiah realizes that he also deserves all of the covenant curses. He was preaching before, and now he's hearing it for the first time himself. He deserves the covenant curses just like Israel deserves them. Because now he has seen the king. Now that he has seen the king, all of his sense of pride 
my cousin, King Uzziah, you might have heard of him. All of his sense of self-esteem, like I'm a, everybody thinks I'm a great young preacher, everybody thinks I'm doing a really good job, I'm, I'm giving good sermons, and everybody's delighted with this. All of that, all of his sense of like, God, how come you're not helping your people out more? How come you're not helping me out more? All of his posturing and all of his sense of pride and hubris just evaporates. And he says, oh boy, I'm dead. But something happens next that is all important for our text and for our book. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tong- with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah recognizes and confesses freely he deserves to die. He has unclean lips. He lives in a people of unclean lips. But he doesn't die. Because by the order of the king, he is atoned for. His sins are atoned for. Isaiah is forgiven. And so now I want you to think about the, first of all, the result for Isaiah, for this message, this book. And then secondly, that we'll see the result in the story here. But the first thing that this means is that one of the woes is atoned for. Right, so those, this is the seventh woe, right? The, 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 the complete woe, the greatest of the woes, falls upon Isaiah, and now it is atoned for. He's been forgiven. So if this woe can be atoned for, doesn't that mean that all the other woes can be atoned for as well? That's exactly what it means. So we're going to hear of sins and judgments and injustices, and and we're going to hear some hard things. But I want you to understand that at Isaiah 6, which is really the beginning of the body of the book of Isaiah, at Isaiah 6, Isaiah tells this story so that we know that all of the sins that are being condemned and all of the judgments that are being predicted, all of it may be atoned for and removed. In fact, right, that's why Isaiah is telling them about their sins and telling them about the judgments so that they will repent. And this story gives them this hope. Isaiah's been forgiven. There's forgiveness for all of us as well. In fact, the king, right, the king didn't have to do anything. The king has the sacrifice all done, ready to be applied to his people. Here's the second thing that we see as a consequence of this encounter and this forgiveness is that Isaiah is now ready to serve. He's fit for service. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now that just, that just like took three seconds, right? But I, I, I think we should hear a big pause after the voice from the throne says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I don't think I was. I don't think I, Isaiah was like. Oh, I'm probably the best candidate for that, right? He just got laid low, and his sin exposed to him. Plus, also there's however many giant or you know flying, burning creatures, right? Who's going to go and speak on behalf of the Lord to really get people's attention? Like if I immediately turned into a six-winged burning creature and began to preach, you'd be like, oh, I remember that sermon. <laughs> I remember exactly what he said in that sermon. So Isaiah's probably like, any of you guys would do a great job. But they don't say anything. 
And so at some point, Isaiah's like, well, I, I guess I'm here too. I c- could go. Which is what God wanted, obviously. Because although the seraphim know a lot about God, right? They know how holy he is in ways that a lot of times we don't understand. They know that the earth is full of his glory in ways that sometimes we, we doubt. We don't see that. But they don't know the essential thing that Israel and the world needed to hear from God's messenger. And that is the message of the hope of forgiveness. That is something that Isaiah knew that they didn't know. And he is now the bearer of that message. He cares, carries the story now of how a person can be restored to God. He's like the Apostle Paul in this way. Do you remember in 1 Timothy 1.16 when Paul says, I was the, the foremost sinner. I was the most notorious sinner in the land. And yet God had mercy on me and appointed me to service so that every other sinner could look and say, well, that guy's a really notorious sinner, but he got mercy. Maybe there's hope for me. And this is Isaiah's situation as well. Woe is me, but I get forgiven. Now it's my job to tell other people under the curses, under the woes, in deep darkness, that there's hope for them as well. So the message of chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, is a great message, which is that anyone can be saved. You live under six woes of God and judgment and wrath. Come on out of there and be forgiven. It's a great message. I was reading yesterday in a commentary and a guy said, almost all sermons on Isaiah 6 conclude with verse 8, probably because of the frankly disturbing character of the remainder of the chapter. So if you need to leave now, (laughs) I understand. So the first half of Isaiah is anyone can be saved. The second half of Isaiah 6 is the message that most people won't want that salvation. Most people won't want it. God gives Isaiah this message. He says in verse 9, Go say to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah is given a very hard message. He's given a message that says, in essence, all is lost. All is lost. And there's just one tiny thing. Right? As we go on and read verse 11, 12, everything's going to be uninhabited. Everybody's going to be taken away. I'm going to clear cut the entire nation of Israel. And then after that, I'm going to come through and burn the stumps. And the only hope is this little one inch long green shoot coming up from the base of one of the stumps. It's a hard message. Verse 9, the message is uh, Isaiah is told to. Preach them, keep on hearing, do not understand, keep on seeing, do not perceive. Right? Isaiah is called to do a work that's not going to work. Isaiah is a clear and powerful preacher. He's not going to convict the leaders of Israel. In fact, he's just going to tick them off. Isaiah 6 is the end of Isaiah's castle ministry and the beginning of his real kingdom ministry. In verse 10, it says, make the hearts of this people dull, their ears heavy. Right? Speak what I'm going to tell you so much that they, their ears get heavy with it. Make their, uh, blind their eyes. Show them it so brightly and clearly that their eyes are blinded. 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So first I want to point out, it is the clarity and power of Isaiah's message that guarantees the judgments, that guarantees the exile. It's the clarity and power of it. Isaiah's not, he's not telling riddles. He's not like, there once was a people. You know, he's telling them the, the stuff in clear, powerful language. So how does this work? Well, it, it works the same in Isaiah's day as it does today, which is this. Every time a person hears the gospel, every time they hear, you're a sinner who can only be saved by the grace of God given in the old Jewish prophet Jesus, and only in that way can you be brought back into fellowship with the God who made you and be prepared for the life that is going to extend beyond death. Every time we hear that and we don't turn away then from our sin and our world, we don't repent and we don't believe, every time that happens and we don't repent and believe, we get hardened to it. We learn to ignore it. Right, so you hear the gospel, and first, you know, you start to get annoyed with it. I go to this church, and they're always talking about Jesus. They're always telling us we're sinners. I mean, I get it. Why don't we talk more about, you know, Revelation? Why don't we talk more about politics? Why don't we talk more about Genesis? Why don't we talk more about, let's get into the details here, right? You start to get annoyed. You start to resent it. You know, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of hearing about how I'm a sinner. I mean, blah, blah, blah. I get it. I get it. We all get it. I'm tired of hearing, oh, Jesus, oh, I need grace. Listen, I'm working hard. I'm doing my best. What's God done for me lately? You start to get a chip on your shoulder about it. And then you start to, frankly, despise the gospel message. I'm just sick of it. I just do not want to hear it anymore. Shut up about it. It's the experience uh, similar to folks who leave the TV on all the time in their house, which I'll visit people sometimes and the TV's on and blaring and it doesn't bother them at all. They completely ignore it. Right? They've got, and the, whatever is on television has had billions of dollars of like research to try to figure out how to be loud and clear and get your attention. And they've learned how to completely ignore it. How does that happen? Right? It's hard, but it, it's possible. When I get into a situation like that, very quickly, I want to take something and throw it through the TV because I'm not conditioned in that way. But this is the same kind of thing that happens to the gospel. We get hardened to the gospel. They were going to get hardened to the gospel not because they never heard it, but because they saw it so bright, so clear, so powerfully. And I want you to know this. This is one of the main things here, and I think this is an important lesson for us. The gospel is going to heal people. It is going to heal people. We are testaments to that, that God, by his grace in the gospel, has healed us and will heal people. But the gospel will also harden people. The gospel will also harden people. And I think this is a good thing for us to remember sometimes. Because the Americans and the American church were a culture of optimism, right? We can do it. We're a culture of triumph. We're going to do it. We're a culture that thinks that we can, if we pick an outcome, we can achieve it. We can get there. We can engineer success in whatever it is. And so we come up against people, we bring the gospel to them, and we're frustrated by it. And we think, well, I'm just, maybe I'm not just praying enough. I'm not sharing the gospel well enough. I'm not doing it often enough. Maybe they're not reading the right book. If you tried this book, if you tried this course, if you tried this program, we just, we can bring the gospel to people and they will get saved. 
This has not been the experience of God's people for thousands and thousands of years. It's not happy, but it's true. The gospel heals people. The gospel will harden people as well. You know, it's interesting here, these verses, which are not happy verses, are quoted five times in the New Testament. Each gospel quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And the book of Acts quotes it as well. It's a very important passage for the apostles and for the early church because it explained how could the cross happen. Right? He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. How was it that when the God they ostensibly worshipped appeared, they had to kill him? This is how it happened. This is a very important couple of verses. It's a very hard couple of verses as well. Because it sounds like, it sounds very much like God does not want to save his people. Now, of course, situated as it is in the middle of our Bibles, we know that he does want to save his people. He has everything to the left in your Bible God has constructed and gave to Israel in order to save his people, in order to protect them, and in order that when they go astray, he will restore them through these means. And then he sends special prophets like Isaiah and 250 chapters, the whole half inch to the right in your Bible is all God sending specially guys to his people to bring them back to him. So God does want to save his people, but we need to realize what's happening right now. Israel is committed to breaking God's covenant. And so exile is coming. It's coming. So you know what mercy is going to be at this point? What God's mercy is going to be is be quick about it. Be quick about it. That's what Isaiah is calling is. Right? God, Isaiah is really good at delighting the faithful. When you and I, who trust in Jesus Christ, who we go to Isaiah, we go, wow, this is amazing. This is so beautiful. I can't believe it. We love it. But that same ministry to rebellious people is going to infuriate them. And that is Isaiah's calling. Be clear. Be powerful. Do a really good job so that you enrage these rebels. And quicken the covenant curses, because then when that's done, the greater, deeper, older promises, the Abrahamic covenant promises, the unconditional promises of grace can take over. And that is the, the holy seed, the little green shoot off the burned stump of what was Judah. All is going to have to be lost before what alone can save may be found. And so Isaiah 6 is about two things, really. It's about how God is going to honor his character, Right? God's character is always to show mercy. He has made every conceivable possible way to call us to his grace, to remind us of his grace, to, to give us grace. And he wants us to come to him. And so God is going to honor his character and make a way. And that is what the story of Isaiah is all about. But God is also going to honor his covenant. The covenant that he made with his people where, where he said, I want you to be a light to the world and you are going to bring my salvation message to all of my people across the entire globe. Do you agree to do this? And they said, yes. And then they said, Pfft. and so God's left with, I got to do justice here. I got to do justice. 
And so some people are going to be saved through Isaiah's ministry. Some people will be. We know that he has disciples. They're mentioned in the book of Isaiah. He has disciples, people who collected his sermons, who preserved the book of Isaiah. But many more people are going to be hardened. And so Isaiah is called to do his work the way that uh, Isaac Dennison talked about writing. She wrote uh, Out of Africa. She said, I show up every day to write without hope and without despair. Now, she obviously was still doing the work, so she didn't mean without hope, meaning no hope. She meant, I don't have any grandiose hopes. Isaiah didn't have any hopes that, Lord, through his ministry, Israel was going to just repent and come all back together and it was going to be kumbaya again. But I also didn't work without despair. He worked, he did the work, he showed up, he knew that some people were going to be saved and that God was going to accomplish his purpose through him. We tend to think of the Christian life and we tend to think of what we're doing as a church as this kind of like victory march. We're just, you know, we're, we're, we're back in Iwo Jima. We're just going up the hill, little by little, digging in ground, and we're going to take it over and we're going to win for Jesus. But probably what's going to happen and what we're beginning to see is what J.R.R. Tolkien talked about as we're fighting the long defeat. We're fighting the long defeat. We're not going to win. You know who's going to win? We're going to win. But... We're not going to win. Jesus is going to win, and we're going to be behind him cheering. So let's talk about this one last little hope. At the end of verse 13, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is growing off of the burnout stump of what God had done. What is the holy seed? Well, the first thing the holy seed is is the story, which is why Isaiah starts with verses 1 to 8. It's the story of Isaiah, which is given for Israel and so is given to us all which is the story of the gospel. Woe is me, I am undone. And, and Isaiah is saying, woe is you, you're all undone too. But then the burning coal touched Isaiah, and so also Israel will be burnt. And then after the coal touched Isaiah, he heard the Lord say, you're forgiven. And after Israel is burnt, they hear the message that the hope of the holy seed now is going to sprout. And there is, there is this hope now for all of the woes that you were under. But when the first readers read this, when the first hearers of the sermon heard Isaiah talk about the Holy Seed and they heard his story, they didn't just think that the Holy Seed was a story. They knew what the Holy Seed was. They knew that the Holy Seed was a person. I want you to, where did Isaiah get this Holy Seed idea from? Right? Where did he get this, this thing? He knew that it was, this person. Well, okay, so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve sin, God lays a curse upon humanity, and with it he mingles in this hope that the holy seed is going to be, he says, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman is going to come. And the seed of the woman is going to come and defeat Satan, defeat the serpent. He's going to atone for Adam and Eve and all their descendants' sins, and so bring us back into a relationship with God that we enjoyed in the garden to begin with. So we learn that there's this promised seed. And then throughout the revelation of the Old Testament, we learn that through the sacrificial system, that they all, they all pointed toward this, right, this lamb who's going to take away sins. So it's going to be this, this sacrifice who would take away our sins. And then in Genesis 3, in Genesis 49, and throughout the Old Testament, there's these prophecies about a king who is going to come. And the king is going to do what we need to have done. Now, 
Where did Isaiah get this idea that this holy seed would be this person? This is the only place the expression the holy seed is used. Isaiah got this, and he knew that this hope was holy. He knew that this hope was sure because he saw the king. Right? He just saw the king, and he saw the sacrifice to whom all of it pointed. Listen to what John says in John chapter 12. He says, Though Jesus had done so many signs before the people of Israel, they still did not believe in him. They could not believe, for again Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about Jesus. This is what John says. Who was in that palace room? The cuff of whose pants John saw was Jesus. That's what John's saying. Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah saw the God King before whom we must despair who offers us forgiveness. Isaiah saw the sacrifice that was burned on the altar from which a coal was taken to give him forgiveness. He saw the sacrifice that saves. He saw Yahweh's salvation, which as a name is Jesus. Jesus is the Holy Seed. Jesus takes away our curses. He cleanses us of sin. He gives us new life. He's the solution to the darkness and distress that lies upon the land. He is the answer to the empty thrones in our lives, like chapter 6, verse 1, Uzziah's dying. The Holy Seed is going to start a kingdom that lasts forever, and that's Jesus. All right, so this morning... The application of this for us, the the warning and the encouragement are one and the same thing. This message, Jesus is our only hope, which is a great encouragement for some of us, right? We all have this hope. doesn't matter where you are, who you are, what you've done, what has been done to you. You have this hope. Woe is you. You feel that woe. Well, great, because God wants to bring you salvation and forgiveness, But this is also a warning. This is also hard news because it it means there is no other hope. Not everybody likes to hear that because we have been putting our blood, sweat, and tears into a lot of other hopes. We are diversifying our hope portfolio. And we don't like to be told that we're idiots. So... And you know this, the gospel message is a message of great joy, but it can also be a message of great sorrow. Sorrow that we've experienced and sorrow that we experience when we try to share it with people and they don't receive it. Right? We know that anyone can be saved, but we also know that most, many, won't want this. And this is very hard for us. So Isaiah chapter 6, it not only describes Isaiah's salvation, it describes his commissioning. And I want us to receive this at the end here. 
that Isaiah has been given new life. He deserves death. He's been given new life. But what is he called to do with that life? He's called to a very difficult work. And not only is Isaiah telling that story to explain why he's doing what he's doing, he's telling that story to invite Israel to participate. Come and be saved and join me in being a light to the world. And he's telling this story for us as well. This is the story of our salvation and our commissioning as well. Listen to what Peter says. Peter takes this language and he says it applies to you Gentile Christians as well. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of chapter 5, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's us. And that's our salvation. That's our calling. Come out of the castle and head out into the kingdom. This is the way of Isaiah. This is the way of Christ. This is the way that we carry his light into this darkened world. What Jesus said to Isaiah is what Jesus says to us as well. He says, you are the light of the world. And they may hate you because they hated me first. But don't be afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even when it is not so sweet and, and consoling and affirming, sometimes it's bracing and reminds us to calibrate our expectations with Scripture and not with pride or hubris or worldliness. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great and glorious King. He is the low and killed, humble sacrifice. He is in the mystery and, Lord, wonder of your plan. He is both these things and so much more. And Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your leniency, for your grace and mercy upon us, that though we deserve death for our sins, you do not give it to us. And we are so thankful that you laid down your life for us, that you were the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world and you have taken away our sins as well. And you have made us to be light now in the places where you have put us, in the relationships that you have situated us among, places at work, family situations. And we want to be your light, Lord. And we ask for your help and your strength, your courage to be light. And to be light, especially as we know that many will not enjoy that light, will not receive that light. And just as surely as Isaiah's heart was broken many times and Christ's heart was, of course, broken completely. Our hearts break as well. And so we ask that you would give us good favor and help us to see people come to know you and also give us courage and endurance to be faithful to this calling no matter what. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.